Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are friends with Fantasy Benefits. Mike, how hard are you right now? Oh, man, I- I've been hard since you you know, said hi. Welcome to Friends with Fantasy Benefits podcast. Now, there's a number of ways that I like this analogy, and I was an English major in college, so, uh, so I could go a little crazy on the whole analogy thing here. We are friends with Fantasy Benefits. It's kind of one of those things where it, it is what it is, right? It's kind of, it's like projecting hitters based on what they did in September. We are friends with Fantasy Benefits. And welcome to a Friends with Fantasy Benefits concept podcast. I have the ever steady, always performing well, Andrew Dewhurst with us today. Andrew, how are things in the great up norte? Oh, it's doing all right. Sun's been out for probably five straight days, starting to warm up. So maybe this spring thing is for real this time. Yeah, let's hope because uh, the, the weather has dragged me down a little bit. Thirty-one degrees this morning when I woke up. It's supposed to. I'm ready to. I'm ready to spring into spring. Uh, <laughs> but regardless of all that, I mean, we do have baseball right on the horizon of uh, Thursday. We have a couple of contextual notes that I want to make today. Uh, I am Chuck Anderson. I can re- be reached at just chucking it on Twitter. And Andrew Dewhurst's moniker on Twitter is throw it out there for him. At Andrew K. Dewhurst. All right, uh, we had a couple interesting things happen on the uh, on the staff chat today. I thought, uh, well, at least I found them interesting. I spent the off season and uh, quite a bit of last year's season uh, screaming to the hills that I thought adjustments needed to be made in how we handled both uh, injured reserves for our fantasy teams and how we handled being able to pick up players. And, of course, with how the season falls with so many games, all the games starting on a Thursday, and nobody being put on the DL, now we have people who are agreeing with me because we had to put in for fab and you couldn't place any of your players on the DL. So someone who both drafted players that weren't hurt 
or uh, players that uh, they got lucky and they didn't get hurt since we've had a rash of injuries here at the end of spring training have a decided advantage, which if if you did Wednesday and Sunday fab, then perhaps by Wednesday a lot of that would be mitigated. Do you feel those things going on around your leagues? Yeah, I mean, I think the the great fantasy baseball invitational is probably the biggest one that's impacted because everyone is openly scrambling at this point in time. And uh, with the DL not formally announced till probably as late as like Thursday, right? Uh, we're all left with no roster spots when Fab opened up or closed uh, Sunday. So uh, it creates some space. And uh, Chuck, you're, it's one of those things where I think you end up getting a little bit ahead of the curve. It's like uh, Ozzy Albies in some cases where you throw it out there and say, is this guy any, you know, how good can this guy be? And everyone tells you he's not going to be very good. And before you know it, he's getting drafted in the top 100. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't want to throw too much credit on myself about it. I mean, a lot of the reason that I was so ahead of schedule on this is that I went through this miraculous amount of injuries last year on my teams. And so uh, it sent this really sharp edge that I I was afraid that this was going to be a trend that we were going to run through, uh, you know, the the 10-day DL creating a lot more stints. So, uh, but right now there is a lot of frustration out there and I hear it almost every time I hear anybody talk about fantasy baseball, like out and about, uh, everyone is talking about, uh, waiting for their Eduardo Rodriguez's to go on the DL or, uh, you know, a lot of these different players that, especially the players that leave a big gap, Eduardo Rodriguez is probably not the right, he was a speculative pick anyway. But the players, the Madison Bumgarner, the player that leaves a huge gap on your team, and we're right at fever pitch time, both for people being excited about baseball and excited about the fantasy season starting, and there's very little that you can do about it right now, because obviously you're not dropping Madison Bumgarner. So uh, that's definitely one thing that's that's going on. Uh, I did find it curious, uh, you know, I... I raged on and on about it. Obviously, I wanted to be in the TGFBI so badly that I was not going to overly protest. Uh, But a couple of the other leagues that I am in, I did protest enough and get the amount of uh, uh, the amount of days that we can run fab or pick up players to at least twice a week. And I, I do think it gets a little crazy if you go beyond, you know, if you go beyond three times a week, I think it gets a little crazy. Like if you can do it every day, then you almost might as well just have a daily league. I mean, there's, you know, there's too much of a good thing. Um, and since uh, I know Andrew's been done, he's just he's just pining over the season starting right now uh, with his drafting. I just want to mention in my one of my local leagues yesterday, they managed inflation so poorly in that league over time. Uh, they created uh, two minor league slots, uh, and you start those player salaries start at two dollars. So, like uh, I've owned, I've owned Mike Trout for as long as uh, you know, as long as he's been in the bigs, and he's finally up to being an eighteen dollar player. So, uh, you know, there's so much inflation that when uh, when we met to auction yesterday, uh, some of the ridiculous uh, player prices that that went, uh, I got Aaron Sanchez for a meager $19. Um, I got uh, um, 
some of the players I got were, were fairly expensive. Uh, but I did wait it out, and at the end of the draft, I got a $7 Michael Conforto in a league that's you know can be a long-time keeper league, so I thought that that was a really good deal. But one of the prices I really liked was a, was a $24 Yasiel Puig. I think, uh, no, $17 for Salvador Perez. I thought was kind of a, a an interestingly outrageous price. So, uh, have you been in local leagues before? Or have you been all in sort of these uh, sort of the national uh, computerized leagues? Uh, I have. My home league is. It's a bit of a local league. It's just not local to me. Like it's like I know like probably like we don't do it live just because I mean people are probably about spread out by about 400 kilometers or so, maybe a little bit more, uh, which is, I don't know, a couple hundred miles or so. So uh, we haven't, you were yet to do it in person, um, but it's, it's kind of that idea. Like everyone, everyone knows each other uh, to some extent, uh, but yeah, that's, that's as close as I've gotten to it. Well, the one characteristic, and I, I've spoken on local leagues because that's definitely where my roots are from, uh, from the Marquette area Rotisserie Baseball League was the first year that I played uh, fantasy in 91 uh, at, while I was attending Marquette University. Um, the one thing that the one thing about local leagues that you do see is I, I saw a number of people yesterday uh, that were nominating and bidding up hurt players which you don't you don't regularly see sort of in the more national uh, framework of the leagues that we've been drafting in. Uh, you know, we had somebody drafted Yasmani Tomas yesterday uh, after, <laughs> after he had been optioned, uh, which does surprise me. And I, I do want to mention, and I haven't mentioned it on Twitter yet, that the, the Diamondbacks have done a great disservice to Tomas, in my opinion. Uh, if they uh, really feel like he can't play the outfield even when they're this short, uh, they should have been doing everything they can to trade him to an American League team where he could at least uh, attempt to DH if his defense is that uh, that abysmal. I find it hard to believe that a team like the Royals or a team like the Rays in certain points in this offseason wouldn't have wanted to take a chance on a guy who's just a couple years removed from uh, hitting, I believe, 30 home runs. But regardless of all that, the actual concept that I sent out this week is a concept about pitcher forecasting and it's funny that we frequently use the term forecast for it because the concept for the week is that I've grown cynical and skeptical enough of trying to predict pitching that I'm going to equate this pitcher performance prediction to actually trying to predict the weather meaning uh no matter what we do, no matter how big a computer that we build as humans, we can't 100% predict the weather, that uh, too many forces at play that can change things, that it's nearly impossible. Now, there's a number of ways that I like this analogy, and I was an English major in college, so, uh, so I could go a little crazy on the whole analogy thing here. Uh, but a lot of times you see momentum and things building up, things on the way, which we would call, you know, looking off to the west for a weather analogy. But you see things building up and you have this, you get this prediction in your head like, oh, there's, this, there's, there's a full-blown storm coming. And in baseball terms, that would be, you know, like uh, Steven Strasburg, 
you know, is opening day the first time he ever pitched in the bigs. He already has the nickname the Messiah, and we realize that you know that he is going to take the league by storm. To use another weather analogy, but at the same time. Uh, for every one of these rightful predictions, it seems like there's tons and tons of wrong predictions. And uh, I, I've done a lot of delving into this in recent years, trying to figure out, to listen to the guys that spend a ton of time analyzing and evaluating pitching. And I almost have gotten to the point where I feel bad for them because I feel like they should get more out of this extra study that they do compared to the rest of us, even within the industry. You know, things like uh, spin rates and, uh, you know, swinging strike rates. And and uh, it's been an ongoing discussion of how is the easiest and the best way to evaluate pitching. So what do you think of the base concept? Do you think that uh, predicting pitching is like predicting the weather? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's very <coughs> accurate, uh, especially when you think of, like, predicting the weather seven days out. Uh, you know, the further away you get, further it gets from you, the more difficult it is to predict. Yeah, I do think there's uh, there's something to be said for that. And I tried to pick out a player list today. We're going to study some pitchers here. And I, I wanted to focus on some of the things that I've found confusing within their evaluation as they've uh, come to prominence or as their major league careers has uh, their major league career has carried on. I remember some uh, very traditional examples. Ricky Nolasco was a pitcher that was much ballyhooed. People really, really thought all the peripherals pointed towards a Ricky Nolasco breakout, uh, you know, top five kind of pitcher ace for a three, four, five year span. And that just kind of never, it, it never developed. Uh, so a couple of the other things before we get into the individual players I picked. You know, uh, it's gotten to the point where, you know, uh, guys like Paul Sporer and Eno Saris, they have inside tracks and they get these tidbits of information about individual pitches. And I question how static the effectiveness is of a lot of pitchers individual pitches over time uh, there, there's a few variables to me number one hitters need to you always hear about adjust and readjust and hitters need to learn what a pitcher throws like the pitcher has a certain amount of advantage when uh, the hitters haven't seen him yet or there's not a lot of information on him yet you get that when a pitcher comes up for a spot start from the minors you get this uh well you know nobody's nobody up here has ever had an at bat against him so this is a huge advantage for the pitcher well obviously as the pitcher gets into the league and progresses in the league the that's when the adjustment and the readjustment period happens so i think the gauging of individual pitch effectiveness has some base problematic issues in and of itself. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure, Tez. I mean, uh, I mean, I think a pitcher's individual pitch and its effectiveness is also gauged by your ability to predict its when it's coming, um, and you know how like how static that pitch continues to be. 
I mean, we've seen lots of pitchers in the past who've had a lot of success with, uh, I mean, I think of guys like, if you're, obviously, I'm sure you remember David Cohn. Like, David Cohn, I, I feel like he threw every pitch from every arm slot at, at every speed. Um, and, and it, you know, it's pitchers have to be smart. And they need good catchers who can call games. So um, I think those are some, you know, things to keep in mind is that uh, while a pitcher has all is the one with all of the talent, he's not necessarily the one putting the fingers down. And um, it's it's more than a one person game there. Well, I do think I I, I don't just want to talk about all the uh, all the clouds that cover trying to trying to judge what future performance is going to be in pitching which I do think is trickier than hitter projections uh, and I, I've heard that verified by a number of people who do regular you know the Todd Zolas of the world uh, I've heard that stated from them as well um, I do really like the players that are on our player list today and I don't want the fact that I'm going to be talking about some of the, the factors and how I think they're very hard to predict, predict pitchers. I don't want that to cloud the fact that I, I do feel strongly that there's going to be really, really good years that are uh, coming from the pitchers that we cover today. And the first pitcher that we're going to cover is 24-year-old Aaron Nola, who is a pitcher who's had a, a really, really steep incline in interest from fantasy circles over the last couple years. But he has developed in fits and spasms for various reasons. So, uh, Andrew, how are you feeling about Aaron Nola going forward? I like Aaron Nola. Um, he's not a guy that I ended up owning this year because of where his where he got drafted. But I was, I was on Aaron Nola last year as... It's um, kind of a post-hype sleeper. Uh, people had kind of, I think people were excited about him coming out of college, and then he struggled a little bit. Um, then he got injured, so he was the guy I was on. Um, he's, I mean, he, he showed a lot of growth last year. Um, he's got a obviously, if you've seen him pitch, he's got a fantastic curveball. Uh, he upped the swinging strike rate to over ten percent last year. Um, and he was getting almost 30% swings outside the zone. So, I mean, there's lots of things to like about Aaron Nola that way. He certainly got the stuff. Um, some would be concerned that he's a, he's a bit of a bad fastball pitcher. Um, but I think having almost a, like an 18.3 value on this, um, on his curveball is probably plus plus, uh, and, a and a plus change probably helps offset that quite a bit. Well, I'm I really really like Aaron Nola, and he it would not surprise me at all if Aaron Nola turned out to be a top six or seven pitcher this year. Uh, it, it really would not stun me. At the same time, uh, there are reasons that the draft price shouldn't go too high, which is exactly what Andrew seems to be pointing at here. To me, and this is all playing devil's advocate stuff here, again, uh, to me, one of the things that jumps out is that his career high in innings pitched was 111 before last season. Right? 
and it jumped all the way up to 179 and a third. So that means that, uh, you know, all the different, uh, one of the, you know, one of the cliches of the day is that you need to watch out for when pitchers uh, have huge jumps in innings. Well, when a pitcher is just turning 24. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Or he's got to have an inning jump somewhere. <laughs> You're not going to be able to avoid picking pitchers who have in inning jumps because everyone's innings have to jump sometime uh, or another you know and you get this with you know both uh looking back on guys like Noah Syndergaard looking forward on guys like Luis Severino uh every year we hear well what's going to happen with what's going to happen with the innings jump in and of itself now uh there's some other issues surrounding Nola. The first one is is that his ground ball percentage went down seven percent last year, which is something that you really don't want to see in a guy who pitches in Philadelphia, because it is an easy place to hit home runs in. So there is a, a bit of a, a furled brow when it comes to that stat by itself. Now. It's hard not to notice that a number of the what we consider indicators are really, really trending the right way. And not only are we seeing, you know, his uh, heightened strikeout percentage of the batters that he faces, but on top of it, the one year that he really disappointed when he had the ERA over 4.25, his one year in the bigs, that year, FIP and XFIP, Still really, really liked him. He had a 4.78 ERA in 2016, but his XFIP and his FIP were 3.08. So most of the indicators that we would see would say that there are definitely sunny days coming for Aaron Nola. And yet, there's still, you can't predict all of the factors. I had a mild sprain of his UCL, which... We never, ever want to hear. He also had a back injury, which we never, ever want to hear. So while you can account for a lot of the variables, and we can say that we strongly feel like Aaron Nola is a pitcher that's on a steep incline upward in his performance, he's also somebody who comes with uh, some of the normal caveats that you get with pitchers. Uh, If you had to guess... Uh, where Aaron Nola would finish this year amongst starting pitchers, what would be your guess? Uh, I think top 20. I think that's that's more 
that's more than being, uh, uh, you know, that's being, that's being very, uh, very well thought out for what we would expect from Aaron Nola. He has a really, really nice skill set, uh, but skill sets are not always static either. They change over time, just like approaches, just like uh, sometimes you catch bad umps, sometimes you catch bad weather, meaning that uh, the wind is bailing out. Uh, there's all these different variables that we can't account for. But most of the accountable factors are strongly in favor of Aaron Nola busting out. So while I focused on NOLA because I wanted to sort of uh, shed some, uh, some shadow of doubt over uh, a pitcher that seems to be going in the right direction, let's talk about a pitcher now who was as highly touted as a prospect. Uh, he was, you know, the number one pitching prospect for a good chunk of time when he was in the minors. And that would be 25-year-old Orioles right-hander Dylan Bundy, who had some really strong stretches last year. But at the same time, there's quite a bit of reason to doubt both his ability to repeat his performance and maybe to ever reach the original uh, the original forecast that we had for his upside. How do you feel about Dylan Bundy? Internet security alert. Um, I'm okay with Dylan Bundy as kind of where he's getting drafted. I don't think he's ever going to be a, a true ace or even a, a fantasy ace. Um, the reason, I mean, the Orioles continue to struggle to develop pitchers. Um, I don't think they've really had any success with that in the last 10 plus years. Um, and we've seen very talented players like Jake Arrieta leave the Orioles and become very successful starters. Um, looking at his numbers, I mean, we look at things like swing strike rate and say, oh, wow, 11.4%. That's great. Um, he gets a lot of swings outside the zone, 33.5%. So better than one in three. So he should be really good. But um, at the end of the day, it didn't equate to strikeouts. He's, his K per nine was only 8.06. Um, his walk rate's very reasonable, but 1.38 home runs per nine, um, that's not going to get it done. And that's you know better than the year prior. The AL East continues to be the AL East with the Yankees adding on and the Red Sox adding on. So it means those home games aren't get like the interdivision games aren't getting any easier for him. Um, so I mean I, I'm bullish on him. He's the kind of guy that I would I would be interested in when he eventually probably gets dropped in the first two months of the season. Um, but he's not typically a guy that I'm looking to draft. Well. There's uh, there's both a distant injury history with Dylan Bundy. He had a whopping 22 innings pitched total in 2015. He had 41 innings pitched in 2014. He didn't pitch at all in 2013. Uh, there's the extra shadow of the doubt that comes in with the fact that he allowed a 273 BABIP last year with a 32.8% ground ball percentage, which is really gives him a fly ball tendency in a rough division to pitch in, in a rough park to pitch like that in. 
Uh, there's also uh, FIP and XFIP. Uh, actually, thought he got a little bit lucky. His FIP was worse than his uh, than his ERA, and his XFIP was even worse yet. So, and again, we're talking about another guy who had a 60 inning jump last year. Uh, he had never started more than 14 games in any major or minor league stop before last year, and he started 28 games last year. So and we go through this a lot. Skill is an, uh, a talent until it's uh, until health is a talent and a skill until it's not. And so maybe he just bloomed into someone who's going to have some years of good health now. Uh, but there was definitely reasons to be concerned at one point in his prospect development that he would ever even get to this point. Uh, but when you were the number one prospect, when people loved your stuff that much when you were young, it's hard to get away from the hope that maybe there is a lot more here than we've seen to this point. The, uh, the skepticism of the Orioles as a team is sort of reached a fever pitch when it comes to how they handle their pitching. Uh, the Alex Cobb signing is was largely frowned upon by, yeah, we're not exactly who should, they were bidding against uh, for Alex Cobb's services. It just sort of came off as a desperation move. Uh, obviously, the Ubaldo Jimenez uh, signing was an unmitigated disaster of, uh, you know, incredible proportions that's finally come to a conclusion uh, they struggled with some Scott Feldman signings uh, you know it, it is a very very it's a very brutal last 20 years of Orioles uh, starting pitching as uh, a friend of mine summarized at the draft yesterday was the last time that the Orioles had good pitching Ben McDonald um, so there's there's some open uh, there's definitely some some open criticism of what happens and how Baltimore handles someone and this in this case it seems like like Dylan Bundy is pretty delicate and his teammate Kevin Gaussman is another guy who needs to be handled extremely well and to this point what we got out of Dylan Bundy last year is the total uh, summary of what they've uh, what they've done well uh, because at least uh, they got him up to that point and in this day and age a 170 inning uh, guy who can win 13 games on that team is uh, certainly a, a bit of an achievement that they actually deserve to get some credit for so I am not as bullish on Dylan Bundy as you are. Uh, the, ex the pitching experts claim that he relies very heavily on the effectiveness of one pitch, and uh, that pitch has, you know, gone off and on throughout the last couple of seasons. I believe that would be his slider that they're pointing to. Let's talk about another uh, curious guy who's got a. a severe injury in his not so far back past and that was Lucas Giolito. Lucas Giolito ended up on the Washington Nationals because he had he was going through Tommy John surgery at the time of the draft. So because he was in recovery from Tommy John that meant that he could last towards the end of the first round and the Nats were a team 
with enough pitching riches and enough minor league riches that they could take a chance on Lucas Giolito coming all the way back from Tommy John, which wasn't as certain that this four or five year stretch ago that we're speaking of wasn't as certain then as it is now because we've gotten a larger sample size of the people coming back from, from TJ. But uh, Lucas Giolito is a guy that I spoke to uh, a few different experts on earlier in the spring, and they were pretty down on his chances of reaching his ceiling, which everyone seemed to think he had a very high ceiling if he could put his pitch mix and get his pitches refined. Uh, but they also felt like he had a pretty low floor. And now we're getting some end of spring training buzz about Giolito. And where is where are you on Giolito? Um, Giolito's a guy that I need to see do it before I can believe it. Um, I mean, just, just uh, at a quick glance of his numbers last year, um, it's not often you see guys with a FIP that's more than about two and a half runs higher than their ERA. Uh, I mean, that's only a 45-inning sample, but in that, he struggled to strike people out. 6.75K for 9 isn't going to get anyone excited. Um, it's amazing that his ERA was that low when he was giving up 1.59 home runs per 9. Um, it looks like the BABIP is, was a big contributor to, to his ERA with just 1.89, uh, and he managed to leave 92% of runners on base. Um, so... He, he's just the kind of player, he's still so young, and I mean, he's got prospect pedigree, he was at, you know, he was what, the the number one ranked pitcher just probably two or three years ago, um, so there's a reason to believe if you're somebody who believes in pedigree, but um, just looking at the raw numbers for what he's done in the major league so far, it's it's nothing to get excited about. Um his his pitch values on Fangraphs don't lead, don't point to anything being exceptional. He's barely over zero on um, with his Facebook uh, his fastball value, and everything is I mean no better than like three point eight for his changeup. Everything else is kind of right around that same spot, which doesn't point to having any standout pitches right now. So um, it's very well very possible that he, he requires some a good pitch mix to be effective. Uh, I just wonder if he's going to get the opportunity to do that with Wellington Castillo behind the plate catching him. Yeah, I mean, Wellington Castillo is an interesting thing to point to as well because, as we've mentioned, uh, you know, you do need good catching behind you to do well. The curious thing about the 6.75K per nine that we got from Giolito last year is that he only had a 4.64 K per nine in his last stint in the majors. But you look around his stints in the minors and there is an 8.56, but there's also an, you know, there's an 11 and 11.11 in 2015 over 70 innings pitched uh, in high A there's uh, you know 9.13 in 71 innings in double A there's a 9.64 Ks per nine over 40 innings in triple A and another 9.37 in triple A last year so it's rare that you see this big of a swing 
but regularly we expect hitters to not come out of the gate maybe with the plate discipline that we thought that they had coming into their you know in their formative time in the uh, in the majors when they first get up uh, my computer's being a little wonky uh, will, will you check and see I know he's had a good spring but will you check and see his spring numbers for me while I talk a little bit more about Giolito here sure I know that uh, there's there's been some amped up excitement throughout the spring with uh, Giolito, and I just cannot remember the numbers exactly for the spring. Uh, the other thing that happened with Giolito is is that him going to the White Sox meant that he was going to get this opportunity to develop at the major league level, which is something that we're hearing a lot about uh, about Lewis Brinson right now, since it since he's going to make the opening day roster and likely be the leadoff hitter in uh, Miami to start the season. And the thing about developing at the major league level is you will, if it fails, that will be used as an excuse as to you know him being mishandled. And if it works, it will be looked at as... Uh, you know, as the break, the exact break that his career itself needed. Uh, what did you find for spring training stats for Giolito? Uh, he has a 2.04 ERA and 17.2 innings pitched. Uh, hitters just hitting 1.69 off of him, 0.85 whip. Um, yeah, so it means he, he's looked he's looked good in spring training. Um, two wins. Uh, I mean, in four starts, so, I mean, it, that stuff's positive if you're one who'd like to buy into spring training stats, um, but I'm, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it, it is what it is, right? It's kind of, it's like projecting hitters based on what they did in September. Um, you know, you're not necessarily seeing the best competition and it's not, which means it's not necessarily going to be indicative of what you should expect for a player moving forward. Yeah, spring training stats. Obviously, you're you know you know you're not facing the lineup uh, a third time in any of your early starts. Quite obviously, you're also not facing uh, the best lineups. You get split squads. I mean, these things have been. I, I think most of our listenership has certainly heard all of this before, um, but. I think with young players, it's usually indicative and more important. Uh, their their mental state as they're trying to establish themselves in the big is a little bit more precarious than you get out of a, a veteran pitcher. So I can see that being a, a, a factor as well. And part of what we're trying to do today is we're trying to show you that things can be looked at in very different lights. The exact same statistics can be looked at in very different lights. You can have someone come in and say, well, I don't see any reason to like Dylan Bundy. He's on a bad team. He's not going to get much support. Now he's got a bad catcher. Or, you know, you can say this about Giolito, or you can say that about Bundy too. But uh, at the same time, you, I can come in and I can say, well, this is what gave him this opportunity. They don't have people pushing him, so he's got a bit of a longer leash to work through some struggles that he may have. Uh, so it's, some of it is spin, and 
I, I, I want to portray that. And I also want to portray that I feel bad that I think guys like Eno Saris and Paul Sporer and our own Justin Mason and all the work that they do in evaluating pitchers, I think they deserve it to be more fruitful than what it is because it's very difficult. Uh, you know, Jarrell Cotton is someone that was brought into prominence by Paul Sporer and Eno Saris, you know, the, this Bugs Bunny change up and the one year that he does pitch in the majors before he suffers a serious arm injury you know his era is over seven and he looks you know he looks just completely overmatched at the major league level and that doesn't mean that the research or anything in the process was necessarily wrong uh that led them to believe that jarrell cotton was a breakout guy it's the other factors that were beyond their control were also at work against them and uh, so I, I just it is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I want to make that, that really clear. Another picture that can be looked at a number of different ways right now is Chris Archer, who is one of my favorite players in the bigs. Uh, you know, he was uh, sent down to Cuba for that goodwill tour that they did last offseason. Uh, he's about as likable a major league character as you can have. I compare him to David Price in his likability factor. So, uh, but results just haven't gone the way that people have thought for Chris Archer. Still highly touted, uh, still a guy who frequently goes around the top 10 for pitchers, but he's also a guy that I don't own any shares of. So how many shares of Chris Archer do you own, Andrew, and what are your base thoughts on him going into this season? Uh, I don't own a single share of Chris Archer. Um, It's part of its price, and I'm trying to get... uh, you know, I've been trying to get starters earlier uh, because I don't necessarily believe in Chris Archer as a number one. Although, I mean, there's he, he's a guy that is is likable, um, and there's lots of things in his numbers that that look positive. I mean, he's had a career high 11.15 K per nine last year, which is extremely impressive. Um, he was a little bit unlucky in BABIP last year; it was 325, uh, which is you know, 20, 20 to 30 points higher than his career average, which means maybe his ERA should have been below four last year. But that also being said, um, you know, when we look at, at the end of the day, it's hard to argue that over 34 starts that he didn't earn his earned run average. Um, I guess FIP was 3.4 and his ex-FIP was 3.5, but I mean, his ERA was 4.7 and, you know, you you're on, you don't in the fantasy game you don't get anything for uh, underperforming against uh, your peripherals just as you don't get anything for overperforming against them like there's no there's no bonus to your to your statistics that way so um, I, I mean he's a guy that I can understand why people are high on him um, if you're gonna try to you know load up on hitting early to to 
in the hopes that you're going to get an ace style season from uh, from Archer. But at, at the end of the day, I think we, I mean, I look at it as results are results. Um, and that's the great thing about baseball is that you play, the game is played so much that you should believe in the numbers oh, because you do get such a big sample size. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm totally okay with Archer. I think he's a great second uh, second starter if that's if that was a way you wanted to build construct your roster. Uh, he's just not a guy that I've been in on this year. Well, some things to be said for to add to what you said about uh, about the potential for Archer uh, is one thing is is that he's pitched at least 194 innings in each of the last four seasons which is uh, in- incredibly valuable in this day and age. And he has had that monster ace season before, 212 innings pitched and a 3.23 ERA in 2015. Had people brimming with confidence. And when he had his 3.23 ERA, his FIP and his ex-FIP were still uh, below uh, you know, his actual production. Most of most of the numbers seem fairly constant with him. Uh, you pointed to the fact that he had a little he had a little harder luck than he's had with his with batted balls against last year, which was definitely true. The other thing that seems to be going against him is the team context. While they do have good defenders, very good defenders uh, behind him, they also seem to have very little offensive support for him, and this seems to be an ongoing trend. For a pitcher of his ilk, it's pretty surprising that he's never won more than 12 games. And when he's he's only been in double-digit wins one time where he had more wins than losses, and that was a 10-9 season. 10-9. and nine. So there's a lot... There's a lot of reason to be uh, down on what is going to happen in Tampa right now. And actually, the extension that he signed is probably the reason that he's still in Tampa. And, uh, you know, there was supposedly the Brewers and the Rays were very close on a deal this offseason. But Brinson and Santana and some other people were going to go to the Rays and the Brewers were going to get Chris Archer back. And if Chris Archer was a brewer right now, if he had switched over to the National League and it looked like he was going to have that kind of offense behind him, uh, I think you would have seen Chris Archer uh, leapfrog uh, four or five of the starters that are being taken ahead of him. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, it, it's possible. I mean, the, the biggest thing I think that holds Chris Archer back is that he's still only a really a two-pitch pitcher. Um, so... I mean, there's only so much unpredictability you can have with a fastball and a slider. Um, I mean, I think he would have leapfrogged certainly a couple guys for no doubt, but um, there there are def- there are some some legitimate hurdles that keep him from being amongst the the top probably five or six guys. Yeah, and that's that's one thing is that his uh, ability to strike people out has kept him really uh, really pretty high up uh, with the way it is. Uh, I'm curious. I want to do a little compare and contrast since we're so high up on the the pitcher list here at the moment. Uh, Who would you prefer this year, Chris Archer or you, Darvish? 
Um, I, I think that's a that's a good one. Um, I want to say Darvish because of because of the team context because I think you're going to get more wins um, while the other numbers will be relatively the same. Um, but I think there's a case to be made for Archer. I mean, he's certainly more consistent. Doesn't have necessarily any impending health risks. Um, so I think actually maybe I, I would select Archer over it because I think it's at, at least for safety at the place that you're drafting. Yeah, and I made the exact opposite uh, decision, uh, and part of it was what you were saying earlier. Had I had a number one pitcher already, I think I may have gone with Archer instead. Uh, but I kind of felt like I needed to go for the whole shebang, uh, you know, hopefully get a, you know, 16-plus win season on top of everything else. Uh, I also feel like Darvish, is, Darvish has sort of suffered some personal humbling, some humility in what happened to him last year when he was tipping his pitches uh, accidentally, obviously, in uh, the World Series. And, uh, you know, he wanted to go back to the Dodgers, and he didn't get there. So I think he's getting personally challenged this year. And I wonder where Archer is going to be for, on a mental status with them, with him losing, you know, longtime team captain Evan Longoria and uh, with them shipping out Steven Souza sort of in these future moves. And, you know, being someone who my brother lives in Tampa and, and I've been around uh, the team, there's sort of always been this uh, – been a bit of uh, a bit of a, a dark uh, a dark force brewing over the top of the Rays, and so much as them not being able to get their stadium rebuilt, and uh, you know, and the stadium being in St. Pete instead of Tampa. So I just wonder uh, mentally if maybe this might be a better year to own Darvish than Archer. Uh, but these are other factors that I wanted to point to in how difficult it is to predict future pitching performance. Another guy that I wanted to look at this year is a guy who's coming off an unbelievable stretch that ended up with him getting his uh, his World Series ring. Uh, you know, he's married to one of the hottest chicks on the planet as well these days. So Justin Verlander. Justin Verlander is a guy that I openly thought three years ago was done. And one of the things that we frequently have to try and gauge in pitchers is how they're going to how they're going to react to the aging curve if their health holds up to a reasonable amount. So Justin Verlander is a guy who is also very up near the top uh, of pitching this year because of being an Astro definitely adds to his value. Uh, what about shares of Verlander? You own shares of Verlander this year, and how do you feel about him? <sighs> Uh, no shares of Verlander either. And this, again, it's not because I don't think Verlander's worth op- worth owning. It's just the place that he goes and drafts. Um, I'm either, I, I've in most cases already grabbed one, one or two stars before he goes. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about Verlander, right? Like the positive is he's pitched over 200 innings in what? Nine of the last 10 seasons. Which is pretty impressive. Um, I mean, at times totaling like 251 in 2011. We don't. I don't think we're going to see that number from anyone again. Um, 
and, and he's typically been a guy that's been over around nine plus K per nine. Um, Verlander, I mean, as a Tigers fan, I've watched Verlander pretty closely uh, in the good times and the bad times. And he, he's a cons- he's just a someone who's always tinkering with mechanics and uh, things like that, which cause a lot of fluctuation in what you see from him. Um, I, I mean, obviously he's a great pitcher. Um, I, I'm not certain he's like, I think he's getting draft. He's getting overdrafted because people are possibly a little bit overhyped on, uh, on the Astros. And, you know, I, I guess if you think that they're going to win over a hundred games, that's, that's great. But I, <clears throat> I just don't necessarily see, Justin Verlander is necess- has finishing it among like the top five or six starters. Um, he certainly have the tools to do it, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of wear and tear on that arm. He's 35. Uh, yeah, just turned 35. Um, so, I mean, certainly he's on likely on the downward trend of his career, not, not on the upward where, you know, he was a former, what, MVP and Cy Young, so um, lots of good things there. I just, I just don't like the price. Well, one of the things I find interesting, and he's really not been on. He's been on a roller coaster of teams. The Tigers were not very good early on in his career. Then they got really good, and then in recent years they've been, you know, they've been falling back to the pack. But how about this? We said that Chris Archer has never had more than 12 wins at the major league level. How about this uh, for years where, when he was over, you know, over well beyond where Archer was? 2006, 17 wins. 2007, 18 wins. 2009, 19 wins. 2010, 18 wins. 2011, 24 wins. 2012, 17 wins. 2014, 15 wins. 2016, 16 wins. And 2017, 15 wins. Uh, if you were going to build a model where you were trying to claim that winning baseball uh, you know, being a winning pitcher in baseball was a skill, you would probably start with Justin Verlander. Um, and that is, uh, that's, that's really, really high, really high praise. And he is but, a wonderful person to look at as far as, you know, all these things that we mentioned, you know, could be looked at positively or negatively. What did you want to say, Andrew? I, I was just going to note that I, I think, we have a little bit of recency bias when we think about the Tigers because they're terrible right now. But, I mean, they were like a game out of the wild card in 2016. Uh, I think in 2006 they went to the World Series. Um, so he actually came up at the upward trend of that team who won like five straight NL- or AL Centrals. Um, so, I mean, he definitely has had the the good fortune of playing on good teams Um and then factoring in last year where he gets to, to move to the eventual, um, you know, World Series winning team. So, I mean, yeah, lucky is a – it's hard to chase wins, but it's a lot easier to chase wins when when you pitch seven-plus innings every time out. Yeah, again, I mean, I think that's probably the most important thing that I was getting at is that, uh, you know, that he has tipped things in his favor on a regular basis. And he's also a guy 
he looks like he's a fighter and a warrior on the mound. I actually kind of jealous of you being able to watch so much Justin Verlander when you were rooting for him, uh, because that is a nicety. The Brewers have not had a long-standing ace of that level uh, since basically since I've been following them. Maybe Teddy Hagera when I was a kid had a few years where he was like that good. But as far as having a long-standing ace who you knew once every five days, you know, you could try and hope to get tickets to see him. Uh, you also knew that he was going to, uh, you know, rest your bullpen. Those are the kind of things that a Brewers fan is completely unfamiliar with at this time. So, but, you know, it's really hard to look at the numbers last year and not be impressed of what, uh, of how well he rebounded. And he definitely got to a point in his career where he thought that he was losing it. And he's recovered both uh, a combination of his velocity and his guile. He's an amped up strikeout version of Zach Greinke in so much as how he knows how to pitch on top of having the ability to pitch, which is another thing that can be looked at very differently. Uh, You know, if you had to guess, you'd have to say, you know, just on normal normal human trends of what we see in baseball players that three years from now, Justin Verlander would be done especially with this incredible backlog of, of innings that we see. But at the same time, this extra guile factor makes you wonder if he's going to fade a lot more like Greg Maddox than, uh, than say, Roy Halladay, uh, you know, which is, you know, to point just at Roy Halladay's career. I don't mean to touch on uh, all the sensitive stuff about what's happened recently with, uh, with Halladay, um, RIP, etc., uh, so, uh, if you had to guess, do you think Justin Verlander will still be a serviceable pitcher three years from now? Absolutely, do. Um, the reason why is uh, I think a lot of people forgot about uh, his two thousand. I think it was his two thousand eight season, um, where his velocity was down, uh, and this was a spot uh, that Verlander himself touched on as being like a real career defining moment where. He actually had to learn how to pitch at a young age instead of just throw, which is what he'd done previous to his career. Um, and I think that serviced him really well moving forward in that um, while he has for large portions of his career being able to touch 99, 100 miles an hour, um, he's learned how to be a pitcher along the way while being able to throw with high velocity. So um, because of that, I think he'll continue to, to be effective moving forward. Um, especially, I mean, he's also aided by, you know, a, a good, a good curveball and a good slider. So, um, he's, he's got a good repertoire. He knows, like, he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. I, I think he'll continue. You'll see him kind of slide down the tiers possibly, um, as things move forward. But, uh, he, he's a guy I wouldn't be surprised to see still pitching effectively until he was maybe 40. Well, that is very high praise in this day and age indeed. And because he's been so good for the game, I certainly hope that that is the scenario that happens, which uh, those of you who play Dynasty Leagues out there, it's kind of interesting to think of, uh, you know, if you think you have a two- or three-year window to try and win championships, that uh, acquiring a 35-year-old player in a Dynasty League uh, could have serious upside. But obviously, uh, a gentleman who's 
like Andrew Dewhurst, who's watched most of his career up close and personal, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot less reasons than any other pitcher to invest in a 35-year-old Justin Verlander for the future. And his ADP is showing that. Uh, you know, we had that the discussion earlier. Uh, Justin Verlander is a guy that, despite uh, some of the problems that he's had in recent years, and we didn't know for sure if he was going to bounce back to this level, he's somebody who's going uh, well ahead of uh, Chris Archer and uh, and you Darvish in all of the leagues that I've drafted so far. So uh, he's not somebody who slides down the list, which you'd expect out of a 35-year-old pitcher. Some of the team context helps that out as well. Well, let's go to the other end of the spectrum, and uh, probably the 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 youngest sophomore pitcher in this year's uh, you know that's that's way up in this year's rankings for pitching, and that's Jose Barrios. Now, Jose Barrios is a guy that was considered to have a pretty limited upside when he was a prospect. He was one of those guys that was racking up really, really impressive minor league numbers while not, uh, while not really being uh, gazed at all that positively by prospect analysts. They felt like perhaps he was not going to be dominant at the major league level. So what are your thoughts about Barrios this year, and uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the difficulty in predicting what we're going to get out of Barrios going forward? <laughs> yeah, Barrios has been a, a roller coaster so far in his career. Um, I mean, it was nice to see him hit 145 innings last year. Um, it, it was up and down when he came up. It was it, He was pitching really well. Uh, then the longer he pitched, it seemed as if he started to come back down to earth a little bit. Um, I mean, it's certainly better than what we saw from him in 2016, uh, where there was some apparently some issues possibly with tipping his pitches. But, um, I mean, Barrios is a, is a guy who, who seems to be very talented. Um, and he's still quite young. Like, he's only 23 I'd be 24 this year, so he's still learning. Um, so he's a he's a guy at the right price. I think is worth getting, um, but I think the hype train kind of catches up with some of these guys a little bit too much and and drives their draft values up. So I mean, you're I think this year you kind of ended up if you were drafting Barrios, I think he still went inside the top 100. So you're still buying potential. Um, and the team context helps him out a little bit this year as well, given that uh, you know the Twins should be uh, playoff contenders, and the AL Central is you know not very good, uh, as most would expect the the White Sox, the Royals, and the Tigers to to all be have miserable seasons. So um, you know, looking at his pitch values, he's got nice fastball, okay curveball, still needs to work on his changeup. Um, if the changeup doesn't develop, I think you would, you know, at best hope for him to, to be kind of like, you know, could he be Chris Archer with, uh, with just two pitches? I don't know if he could, but, um, it's, I think it's still too early to, to, to start predicting who or who he isn't. 
Yeah, there's... Sorry, who he is or who he is not. Yeah, I mean, there's a definite case to be made both ways, and that's certainly one of the things that this podcast is trying to get at. Now, oddly enough, I would think that I'm a little more concerned about the Twins long-term than I am this year. I mean, one thing that I think gets glossed over in the Twins making these one-year deals is what happens next year, because they're really no more of a player. I mean, Joe Maurer comes off the books, and that and you know gives you some extra wiggle room in and of itself no one doubts that at the same point no one thinks at least i don't that the twins are going to be the twins are not going to be a, a version of the yankees the dodgers and the red sox after this year either so uh some of the upside window in barrios is probably in this season alone uh you know they could be without lomo depending on how various things play out. I mean, there's a number of different things at play here. You know, we will find out who the real Miguel Sano is this year, uh, or at least we hope to, uh, now that he's cleared his allegations. So the team context is is interesting uh, as far as as Barrios goes. Uh, When I say that he was he was not considered an elite upside kind of pitcher when he was in the minors and his initial stretch in the majors was so overly successful that I think that's one of the things that has played into the hype train. Uh, I don't really think that he's, you know, he was expected to be, uh, you know, a top 10 style pitcher that his initial run in the bigs showed us. And then he slowed down as the year went on. If you want to stay on the positive side, one thing that jumps off the page to me is that you're looking at a guy who only went up like 14 innings last year. He went from, you know, the 170 range to the 185 range. And that is uh, that is really a, a very good sign. Uh, most, you know, his ground ball percentage went up between those two years in the in the uh, majors, although he's not an extreme ground ball pitcher at all by being around 40%. And his home run to fly ball rate went uh, way down as well. And you make a really good point about the AL. If you're on the Twins or on the Indians, uh, there is a lot of there's a lot of progress to be made pitching within your own division this year. When you have uh, teams, you know, leading off with Leonis Martin and uh, teams with Alex Gordon in the middle of their lineup, and teams just sort of trying to find their way, Adam, the Adam Engels of the world, getting at bats in, in uh, you know, for the pale hose. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good setting this year. Uh, it, it could be said that this might be the best year to own Barrios as a twin. And I hope it works out that way because I have a tendency to root for guys whose results in the minors are very good, but the prospect guys are not necessarily uh, as uh, hyped up about. But there is uh, there's the same sort of effect that you get out of a Yasiel Puig who had an amazing month and a half. Uh, I wonder if that's what sort of has has pushed him out of my price range in all the drafts this year. I've seen him going uh, pretty close to the area, uh, you know, right after 
uh, right after Darvish and Archer, and I think that that is a little bit too much. Uh, where would you be comfortable? Where do you think he should go? You think he should go closer to the 150 to 175 range than the 100 range? Yeah, I, I would be much more comfortable taking him inside of that glob, you know, around guys like John Gray and um, Trevor Bauer and, and kind of that grouping of pitchers. Yeah, I mean, there's there, there's no doubt about it because I, I don't think that we've we've got a conclusive amount of evidence to exactly what uh, Jose Barrios is going to be at the major league level just yet. Uh, one thing that the very end of last year and his 2016 season sort of uh, points to is that he has yet to put together a full. Uh, a full body of work kind of season yet and if he goes through some really rough patches that of course uh, leads us to short attention span theater which is something that us fantasy baseball players are are known for on a regular basis well i wanted to uh point out uh some things that uh that i've seen trending over the last couple years as far as pitching analysis is concerned and uh, I, I think we've shown a lot of we've shown light on a lot of these different factors that that we see going on uh, within the industry and uh, you know when it comes to player evaluation as a whole. Uh, I got the dumbed down question, and I want to give it to you here quickly before we get out of here. I got the dumbed down question of you know if you're going to use one statistic to judge pitching performance by what statistic would it be and i'm curious since i I didn't preview this with andrew uh how would you answer that question uh that's a really tough question um if i only had one pitching stat i guess i would i i feel like if i could only use one i would probably use whip because i think it's the most indicative of your performance, like elite pitchers typically have one, uh, have a one or a sub one whip. Uh, and all the rest of the numbers don't necessarily matter because if you're limiting walks and hits, you're always going to be successful. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very intuitive and very well spun answer. I've sort of played off something that's very similar to that. In, uh, and, and what I want to say about looking at WHIP is that I am a very big proponent in the regular stats that we see as fantasy players. I'm a big believer in believe the WHIP and be skeptical of the ERA. Like you see a guy who's got, you know, a 2.9 ERA and a 1.46 WHIP, uh, usually that ERA is going to get back in line closer to what the WHIP is. Uh, I strongly, strongly, I strongly agree with that part of it. I maybe, I took a bit of a different slant to answering that question and that I believe the, if I could have one, if I could have one predictive stat for future success, I would prefer a K to walk ratio. Um, and the, I think it points to a different level. Uh, I think the the angle that Andrew's taking is is a smart one. What I'm going to say about K to walk ratio is that 
pitchers who can strike out a lot of batters to help themselves get out of jams have an inherent advantage within Major League Baseball because we even point to BABIP, uh, you know, batting batted ball data against as something that pitchers have, you know, only so much control over. And they only have so much control over their defense behind them as well. How many times have you watched a pitcher, a misplayed fly ball that gets ruled as a double, you know, a sun double or, uh, you know, just, you know, a complete whiff by a fielder turns into earned runs against. You only have so much control over that. That's also, they also turn into hits, which does affect whip. But the things that I think pitchers can control the most is K to bases on balls. I think that's the one stat that I would use. Um, can you see my angle there, Andrew? I, I can, but I, the only thing is, I think it's would easily could, could easily be obscured um, because if you had one, like, would you feel better about the pitcher who does strikes out four and walks one in seven innings, or would you feel better about the pitcher who strikes out eight and walks two? Well, I guess they'll my, have the same ratio. They will have the same ratio, but I also think uh, what you what you see is you see a same base effectiveness. Now, some of the reason that I like K per base K to bases on balls so much is because some of the other stuff is sort of controlled outside of the equation. Meaning, if a guy just gives up a ton of hits, okay, he's probably not he's probably not going to get to the highest levels of the sport in and of itself and uh what what i'm saying is is that you get this the controllable factor in one easy place like i think fip and xfip sierra stuff like that end up going a little bit too far into delving into uh you know the stuff that a player can con- the, the stuff that a pitcher can't control but the one thing that a pitcher can you know is in uh, an effective pitcher is in control of is he makes people he he controls the counts that's what i think is the biggest thing about kata to walk ratio if uh if a hitter goes up there realizing it's going to be very is very unlikely to walk he's got to look and for spots earlier in the count that helps keep a pitch count down that also uh you know less walks is so good in so many different ways for you know keeping bases keeping the bases clear i think that the four to one not for our game for fantasy but i think the four to one pitcher in seven innings is as effective as the uh eight to two uh, because uh, you know the the four to one also it takes a lot of pitches to strike people out, so I would actually equate them pretty similarly. And it sounds like you're not on the same page with me there. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things where I think you can make a case for their side. I mean I think from a from a viewing standpoint, you'll always be more impressed by the number of strikeouts. Um, although you will possibly at some point look back at the pitch count and when one of them's out at the sixth and the other one's still in in the middle of the eighth and say, you know, which one was more effective. But, um, I don't know, it's it's one of those things where I think there's a case to be made on each side. Um, In the overall game of baseball, I agree. I think it's it makes sense for for striker-to-walk ratio. 
Um, in fantasy, though, I think it just ends up being a little bit could be more misleading than you would like. I think if he stacked up just that ratio and you know looked at like twenty players to try to guess where um, you know who, who is who. Yeah, and you know we it was a limiting exercise because obviously you can't really dumb down pitcher effectiveness to one stat. <laughs> uh, but I would say this: I really like our answers, and if I had to dumb it down to two stats, a combination of WHIP and uh, and K to walk ratio, I think is a is an excellent way to uh, to sort of judge how effective a pitcher has been, and uh, you know how well they've been able to control things that they have some control over. So anyway, I really wanted to uh, go through this exercise because uh, I know it can be daunting to listen to podcasts and hear Z swing percentage uh, versus X swing percentage uh, versus, you know, ground ball tendencies to pitch mix to pitchers pitching to certain catchers in certain situations and day games and night games and uh, I, I wanted to both give credit and say that you know that it's a very difficult thing that the people who are out there that are trying to gauge exactly uh, what the future value of pitchers is going to be because uh, we, we went through all these different variables and we focused a little bit on the injuries a little bit on the situations a little bit on the adjustments that people have to make a little bit on the you know the quality of the competition that they're going to face these are all things that make what I believe and what I think I get a general sense that Andrew believes is predicting pitching is a lot more similar to predicting the weather than we would like it to be. It's also part of the fun, part of the luck, part of the game. So I don't mean to be so disparaging about it that I think it takes away from the excellence of baseball because uh, Lord knows uh, I can't wait for Thursday and I love baseball as it is. Andrew, why don't you... uh, Give us your Twitter handle again and let us know if there's anything special going on and, uh, and we'll get out of here. Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Andrew K. Dewhurst. Uh, nothing too special going on. Uh, hockey season's just getting ready to wrap up. We're in most uh, championship weeks if you're playing in the head-to-head. Um, I have a really interesting Roto League that's all – Five of the top five positions are still let yet to be decided. So, uh, other than that, just looking forward to Thursday, getting and uh, hopefully starting to see the the fruits of all these this prep and draft results. Well, I am uh, I am also getting ready for the season. I'm Chuck Anderson at just chucking it on Twitter, uh, and the injury. The injury-riddled season that I had last year, and it really hasn't been too bad in the preseason for me, but unfortunately I seem to have passed it on to my wife. So uh, she's uh, she's dodging injury bullets, seem, more injury bullets seemingly every day, uh, although it looks like Denilson Lamette is going to be all right for her at least. So... Uh, but the point being is that there's a lot to be excited about right now, and uh, we're pumping out a lot of good stuff for you. We'll continue to uh, get the print content out on FWFB for you as well. So uh, keep in touch with us, and we will uh, we will keep you in tune with all the different things that are going on. And we're offering a lot of different formats. This concept podcast on Mondays, followed by a pop quiz podcast that I 
oversee on Wednesdays. So uh, uh, we certainly hope you're enjoying the content and we appreciate your downloads and listens. This was FWFB and a concept podcast. Thanks again for the listen and the support.